You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, my name is Jasmine Stoughton, and you are listening to another episode of The Mosaic Moment. For those of you who don't know, The Mosaic Economic Project brings together a network of diverse women who are experts in economics and technology. These are fields in which women's perspectives are grossly underrepresented, and we train these experts on how to engage in meaningful policy conversations with a particular focus on Congress and the media. You can learn more about The Mosaic Economic Project on Twitter at MosaicPPI. Without further ado, I will hand it over to Ariel and Dr. Sarah O. Lamb to get into the conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariel Kane, PPI's Director of Healthcare Policy. I'm here today with Sarah O. Lamb to talk about how we need better internet access to realize the potential of telehealth. Sarah O. Lamb is a senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Sarah received her PhD in economics and JD from George Mason University. She was previously the operations and research director for the Information Economy Project at the George Mason School of Law. She has also presented research at the Telecommunications Policy Research Conference and has co-authored work published in the Northwestern Journal of Technology and Intellectual Property, among other journals. Sarah is a former Mosaic cohort member. Thank you for being with us today, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Ariel. So the catalyst for this episode was a recent report that came out from ASPE, uh, the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at HHS, which found that telehealth use was unequally distributed during the pandemic. Um, And I thought that that would be an interesting conversation to talk about both telehealth and also, um, you know, the, the policy decisions behind it, which in um, which make it accessible or not. And before we launch into that, I wanted to just briefly give an overview about telehealth more generally speaking. The benefits of telehealth are that the idea is that it would make access to care easier and potentially make it more affordable. But until the pandemic, it never really took off, both because consumers weren't eager to use telehealth and also physicians weren't eager to provide telehealth. And a lot of payers, um, so like Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance, weren't covering it. Then that all changed in March of 2020. The federal government changed their policy to cover a lot more telehealth services through Medicare and Medicaid. And then private insurance, which was ahead of the federal government, also covered a lot more services remotely. And now we're starting to see the results of that and see, you know, the data starting to come out. We're starting to see how many people used it. What were the benefits? Did it save costs? Um, We can get a little bit more into the cost issue later because, uh, for the duration of the public health emergency, a lot of um, payers are paying, have payment parity between telehealth and in-person appointments. And so right now that we're not seeing a ton of savings, it doesn't mean that the potential isn't there, but we're kind of in this weird um, abnormal time where I think we're not necessarily seeing that part of telehealth, but we are seeing it being used. 
Prior to the pandemic, less than 1% of visits uh, were provided remotely. And during the peak of the pandemic, when like in certain regions when they were being dominated by COVID, up to 80% of visits were provided via telehealth. Um, and so that's just an enormous change. And I think like once the cat's out of the bag, we're unlikely to go back. But the reason I have you here, Sarah, as I'm on this whole uh, monologue is that I wanted to talk a little bit about why it's distributed unequally. This report that came out found that lower income people were actually more likely to use telehealth appointments. Um, However, they were more likely to use audio only services, which was a new service that was sort of rolled out during the pandemic. And you can imagine that that might be because they have less accessibility of video capable devices or internet that (laughs) provides a video capable connection. And I just was hoping you could talk a little bit about like you know, what are the barriers to getting broadband everywhere? Like, why do we see this unequal distribution of internet access? And, you know, maybe we can get into this a little bit more, but how we should go about changing that. Sure. Thanks, Ariel. Um, so I think what you're referring to is the digital divide. Um, and and that's, that's how we talk about it in broadband policy. Adoption rates for low-income um, households are lower. So even though they have access to broadband, they're not subscribing um, as much as high income households. And you see this um, in, in the data and the divide is that is that gap between access and adoption. Um, the causes of that gap are still to be determined. So that's actually kind of a tough empirical um, question to answer why aren't households adopting. Um, It's a mix of many factors um, and different studies have have tried to measure and surveys measure what it is that keeps families from signing up. Right now, people think it's affordability, um, the cost of services, but a lot of um, programs now have have brought the cost down to zero with voucher programs, the emergency broadband benefit program, the lifeline program, private initiatives, um, cable companies are offering low price services um, bundles. And so, you know, the question goes to, well, survey responses also show relevance, um, digital literacy, um, age as a factor, um, you know, older folks don't know how to get online. Um, So there are a lot of reasons why adoption lags for low-income households. We don't quite know um, how to fix that problem, but in my work, um, you know, we recommend that the government run experiments, gather more data to really find out why there is that adoption gap. That's really interesting because I, I think one of the in, the most interesting findings from the study was the divide between audio only and video appointments. The government agreed to cover more audio only services through Medicare. That was a big change. Um, I don't actually know like what the status was for uh, private coverage of audio only services. But you can imagine that a video appointment just allows for more connection between the patient and the provider. It allows for a more holistic understanding of what's happening, but it also requires a video-capable device, um, perhaps a more quiet setting. It's not as private as a phone conversation. So you can imagine 
all of those barriers. It, it also requires some level of digital literacy and English literacy because most of these programs are all set up in English. And then just normally, if you think about using medical software, it's normally not as easy as like FaceTime or Zoom or consumer-facing software. Like it's, it's there's a lot more, you know, security and remembering your password and rules and that I think also creates other barriers for people to use it. But one piece I also was wondering about is just what about like the urban rural divide of broadband more generally? Like, you know, there are places in this country where broadband is not available. And obviously, you're not going to be able to have a video conversation if you don't have high speed internet. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that divide uh, and why we're still seeing that? I feel like we've been talking about broadband access in rural areas for so long. And it's crazy to me that it's still not solved. <laughs> right. So that's another kind of digital divide. That's an access or availability divide. And you can imagine that, you know, connections going out to rural places are very expensive because a house um, might be far away from other houses. So you don't have economies of scale for putting down a broadband line in the ground. Um, and so this is kind of another dimension of broadband policy, how to get to the, that last mile. Um, But the Federal Communications Commission has had a rural health um, portion of their universal service program for several years now, where um, even back in 2017, they were funding over $500 million annually for subsidizing rural health care coverage. In the pandemic, the FCC increased um, funding for that rural health care program adding another $197 million during COVID, during um, June 2020. Um, They added on a lot of extensions to help with pandemic response. And in the CARES Act, Congress also approved additional funding, another $200 million in the the telehealth program in April 2020. And then there was another $249 million in the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Oh, and another $100 million for the FCC Connected Care Pilot Program. Um, and this money went towards providers, so healthcare um, offices, hospitals. And so you can imagine that there are both sides. There's the person at home trying to connect on video to their doctor, but then there's also um, the providers, the doctor's offices and, and hospitals having to connect um, to patients. And so, I mean, just out of my own experience, like different doctor's offices use different software and it's still not a streamlined process even though you know i wouldn't say i'm disconnected or like not (laughs) literate it's just everyone's trying to figure out a system so you can imagine um there's a lot of uh trial and error yeah i think about with myself and how i hate downloading new apps like i don't know if other people feel like this but i don't want any more apps like if a doctor's office or something doesn't have an option where i can just open it in a browser window but instead i have to like download some new app that's only for this office i get very annoyed and i'm like oh I'll just go in or I won't even do it. And again, like I'm someone who uses technology, is very comfortable with technology. And if I feel like that, like how do other people who maybe have increased barriers 
to accessing it. And I wanted to go back to a point that you brought up about making sure that hospitals also have connectivity or healthcare providers. A big issue, or in Medicare prior to the pandemic, typically speaking, you would go into a doctor's office for your virtual appointment, and then the doctor would be connecting you with a um, specialist. So you would be in the presence of one doctor while they were calling another doctor in to consult. Um, And that was more or less how telehealth was mainly used in Medicare. Now, of course, that you're you're at home and you're you know you're calling your doctor who may also be at home, and you know that changes what type of connection is needed, and um, you know to, for sharing files or sharing images, you again need um, a high speed connection, and so you can send long files or large files, and in certain places of the country that's still not available. So I think that in order to, if we're thinking about using telehealth or this cat being out of the bag, we want it to be equally distributed and we don't want it to be another sort of divide where only uh, high income people or highly educated people are using the service and lower income people have, who already have increased barriers to care, now have another unequal access uh, with this new program that we, you know, we would want to, uh, in fact, close that gap. So I think when we think about like the policy for moving forward, like what types of policy are needed to increase access to telehealth, obviously we need to get broadband to everyone. Um, The federal government has poured a lot of money into this that's still not there. Um, What are there any sort of thoughts you have around how to finally sort of get it? Like, is do we need more money? Do we need more states and localities involved? Is it better public-private partnerships? Like, how do we sort of finally get that last mile and make sure that everyone can access high-speed internet? Well, I myself haven't done a lot of empirical research on this, but I think the digital literacy portion um, is a big part of the equation. And so making it easier to sign on. And so even um, even for people who are familiar with technology, lowering those transaction costs. Um, and I, I mean, it, it, you can't really say like, oh, healthcare providers have to use one standardized platform. But hopefully these like portals are getting easier for people to use. Um, and with time, all the different private providers can pick a platform that's easy um, to mm-hmm. operate and connect with patients. Um, so I think a lot of that happens uh, um, through tri- through usage of these platforms. So it's still early days, I guess, um, for telehealth. Um, I think for the broadband part, the adoption part, I don't know if we can, if it's possible to even spend more money without wastage. So right now we're looking at the um, IIJA, the infrastructure bill, and Mm -hmm. there'll be hundreds of billions of dollars spent on broadband. And so my work is monitoring and helping the states um, know how to distribute that money. And it just seems like a lot of it might be wasted um, if we're not implementing good um, mechanisms for distributing the money, um, comparing um, between service providers, running competitive bids, um, evaluating programs. So a lot of money is going out the door. A lot of money has gone out the door through the Universal Service Fund and through the E-Rate program, through Lifeline, through the Rural Health program. Um, so I think our challenge in policymaking is evaluating programs and, and knowing how to tweak them better. So small interventions, like you mentioned, like Medicare covering um, audio visits versus video visits, 
you know, why, why aren't they covering more video visits? Um, and, you know, and the, the study that you mentioned in your blog post is a good one. We need more studies like that comparing um, audio and video visits and, and recommending to the agency um, what kind of coverage should be provided. Definitely. I mean, I think to your point, you know, there, there are roughly 18 million people who still don't have access to high-speed internet. And I think that money is not the issue at this point. Like, there's there's enough money out there. It's just making sure that it it gets to where it's needed. And, and, and perhaps, like you were saying, making sure that people are aware of programs available to low-income people and so that they can, ac- they can get the – even if they have access to the service, making sure they sign up and get it to their homes. And then, you know, to I, I think other policy things that either should be changed or here to stay would be the audio-only service. I think that Medicare covering that was a good idea. I think if we think about the population that Medicare covers, um, older people, um, I think that there's more digital literacy problems and covering phone calls makes sense. Um, I also think that like that's reimbursing providers' time you know, oftentimes providers might have been helping and doing that care already, but weren't getting reimbursed for it. And I think that that's, it's fair to pay them for their services and for their expertise. I do think, however, we should be trying to push people towards video appointments, even if we cover a less, you know, the less desirable of audio only. Uh, I think trying to get people online as much as possible, is just provides a more holistic uh, view of the patient. You know, payment parity. This I was going to get into this at some point. That's been a big conversation around should telehealth appointments be reimbursed at the same rate as in-person care? And my view on this is that um, a telehealth appointment is not the same as in-person care, and that the cost savings are from you know ha- having the appointment virtually and not using medical space for the appointment, not having a facility fee. And so I do not think that um, telehealth should be reimbursed at the same level as in-person care outside of a pandemic when there are extraordinary factors at play, except for in one case. (laughs) I think that mental health appointments are more or less comparable um, to be held virtually. And also we have huge problems with parity in general with mental health. So having it not be treated as equally as medical care and I think that one way to do that would be to offer payment parity for um, mental health appointments offered remotely. Uh, also, that could increase access because, as we know, going back to your point about economies of scale, there are some regions in this country that don't have any um, mental health care providers because there aren't enough patients in that area. And I think that telehealth is an opportunity to really um, reach those people. I have a question about the audio versus video um, connection. Yeah. Is the audio visit just a phone call or does it go yeah. through a portal with tracking? And uh, No, it's just a phone call. So it is much easier for people to call in a line and just be connected right away. Video visits can be kind of complicated. Um, you go through a portal, you sign, create a user account, um, or, exactly. or even, I don't know if there are HIPAA rules related to There, There are. Yeah, aren't attached to an audio call. No, there. Yeah, there are there are HIPAA rules governing platforms that you use um, for communication with a provider, 
And um, a lot of those uh, rules were lifted during the pandemic. So doctors were allowed to provide virtual visits like over Zoom or Facebook uh, Messenger and other platforms that people might use in their day-to-day lives. Um, And I think that also is why we saw such an increase. Again, if we're talking about reducing barriers, these are platforms that people already use and are comfortable with. But we expect like when the public health emergency lifts, which could be in as soon as 60 days, um, those rules will expire. And so most physicians uh, had started moving towards um, medical like a medical software. So that's HIPAA compliant. And, you know, sometimes their EMR or EHR platforms will have like an add on service of setting up video um, appointments. Uh, so, so physicians have moved in that direction, I think, already. But back in March of 2020, there was a huge um, change, and and physicians were meeting with patients like over Zoom and stuff. And they uh, were allowed to um, uh, charge for audio calls prior to the pandemic. Is that I think it depended on your payer. So, you know, different payers have different rules. But in Medicare, no. Generally speaking, I think there were like a few very narrow exceptions. But no, that was not considered medical care. My mom is a medical care provider, and she provides um, maternity care, and she spends many, many hours talking on the phone with new new moms. <laughs> and I uh, I always joke about, like, what if she was able to bill for all that time, which now she can, <laughs> at least under Medicare, but new moms tend to not be on Medicare. Um, so I think that, like, the last point I wanted to make, which uh, you kind of touched on this already. I don't know if there is a policy solution to this, but how do we make medical software more consumer friendly? If we think about the barriers to care, some of them is just literacy, um, digital literacy. And, you know, Zoom is so easy. FaceTime is so easy. But those are obviously designed to be that easy. And um, medical software is not that easy. (laughs) So are there, you know, do we just encourage more piloting through, you know, there's some federal government programs that, you know, do experiments and things like that? Or do we just kind of hope that the private market solves this themselves? Yeah. So just out of my own experience, like uh, Care First had a video portal. And so economies of scale, I guess that provider has many different, um, many patients and many providers. So it's in their incentive to have a system that works well and quickly and fast. Um, I didn't even think that was that great because I clicked, um, you know, connect and then I had to wait and there was like a, a waiting spinning um, icon and and it just wasn't clear to me like where I was in line and I was disconnected. And and so you'd think that, oh, it'd be as easy as Amazon or like Google, like that's what we're used to. Um, like you just click and it works um, and you get notified and but I guess the health system, the incentives aren't quite aligned that way yet um, because of the insurance companies and, and billing and, and all that. Um, and the providers, do they have a profit motive to make their systems faster? Um, maybe not so much, um, you know, uh, <laughs> because they're not really profiting um, as much as they're billing insurance. Um, and so you see like smaller companies um, coming into that market, like there's one like other, I, I'm just speaking anecdotally, like like GoodRx, like I used it and, you know, they can do very, um, very quick visits and and they're super fast, super friendly, like you can chat and, and so you can see the private market is working on um, making things faster and easier. 
I don't know about policy solutions aside from aligning incentives better. Um, I guess cutting through red tape and insurance policies and Medicare, um, making that one change between audio and video visits is like a big bureaucratic um, rulemaking, I would suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> so just making that one change rather than, I mean, maybe they can run experiments um, and find out about outcomes. Um, I don't know how Medicare makes their decisions um, about about payment policies. So I, I do. Th I think it would be a combination of the private sector and policymakers just wanting needing to make these platforms easier to use. Yeah, I was thinking about incentives around um, like we already talk about interoperability a lot and making sure that people can access their own records and transfer them between providers. And it's a known problem that you can't do that. And I was thinking maybe you could attach incentives around interoperability and and just general like usability um, and trying to make the consumer experience better. Um, but I think that that's all we have to cover today. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. For those interested, Sarah can be found at Sarah with an H econ on Twitter. And I can be found at Ariel Sophia. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thanks, Ariel. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute. Or go to our website, at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.